Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Ash, what would the title of your memoir be this week? I would say Zen. Sure. An attempt at Zen. Well, Zen and an attempt at Zen mean almost opposite things. (laughs) So where did you land? I think I'm, you know, on the road towards Zen. Okay, so here's the thing. I decided this week that I am going to become Zen. Totally. That I'm going to stop being bothered by things in my life that I cannot change. I'm an AA now. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly think our personalities would benefit from a little bit of AA. I think think we would both really benefit if we could find God. I don't see that on the path of us. Yeah, I don't really see either of us becoming the godly types. I do wish we knew peace. (laughs) Oh, I would love peace. I would love to know just like a glimmer of peace. But anyway, so I decided that I was just going to like not let shit affect me anymore. I was like, I'm always taking stuff personally. Stop letting things get you down. Okay, Mm -hmm. stop letting a perceived person on the street who like is annoying to you ruin your day. You know what I mean? I really feel like something I've had to work on is you know that old phrase I would never want to be part of a club that would have someone like me as a member it's yes. the opposite of that it's stop being upset that you weren't invited to a party you didn't even want to go to yes that's how I get really hung up on I'm like okay so like all these people were hanging out without me and I'm like well I've never invited any of them to hang out I don't even like them you could be like oh my god why don't they like me and it's like because you don't like them so I decided to stop taking perceived slights so personally and as a test the lord that we don't believe in sent me a literal child bully to quiz me on this process okay (laughs) I was at the park having a little workout so when I was doing the abs a literal child was coming up to me and telling me that I was not doing a good job (laughs) it was this little kid in a neon shirt and matching neon crocs and I was like okay your outfit is disgusting please stop judging me She would come up to me. She would lay down next to me and be like, what you're doing is not working out. You have to run over there for it to be working out. Why was she saying this to you? I told you, Claire, I was being tested by the Lord. (laughs) I hate the Lord. This is why we don't believe in God, because he does mean things to people. She was laying down next to me and I was like, "Okay, if you want to participate in the ab circuit, here's what we're doing. We're planking. She was just like, this is easy. This is so easy. She probably wasn't even doing it right. Was her back? Yes, her back. She was like doing a downward dog kind of. And I was like, straighten your back. And then I went down to an elbow plank and she just laid on the ground. She's like, you're not working out. And I was like, take your belly off the ground or you're not doing it. Okay. You know, when you plank, you're still, you're trying to be as still as possible. The Mm -hmm. goal is stillness, right? So then she just sat down cross-legged and put her hands up like she was meditating. Mm -hmm. And she goes, what I'm doing right now, meditating, I'm working harder than you're working. I just say she wasn't even meditating right Actually, meditating is hard work and she was failing at it. If you're worried about what I'm doing, you're actually not meditating. So listen to the sound of your breath, you dumb bitch. Anyway, and then I would like do my two laps, come back and then for another four minute circuit and she would be back there again to bully me. Where were her parents? On the phone. The mom was just kind of like chuckling in the corner. And I was like, what you're doing right now is bad parenting. Well, I'm sure that mom was sick of her dumb bitch, nasty little daughter. (laughs) And she's just like, finally, a moment of peace away from my judgmental, unathletic cunt of a child (laughs) this kid can't even plank she has a zero pack kids should be able to plank because they're mostly muscle kids have a ton of upper body strength because their upper body relative to the rest of their body is most of it also they just don't know what they're doing so it's easy to do physical activities when you're not prepared for them I've found I remember the first time I ever ran a 400 that's what I was gonna say is races like a half marathon and stuff like that when you're just so hard because you can't even imagine how tired you'll be at the end but then as you grow up you know fear yes you know fear you know pain you know soreness you know peeing your pants by accident (laughs) at a track meet six hours away from your school you just have to kind of sit and until you get back on the bus I don't actually know that but it sounds relatable I don't know it either (laughs) 
<laughs> you just came up with that. It's just the thing I was thinking maybe someone knew. I think that someone out there might relate to it. And so I'm glad you said it to make them feel less alone. But whoever that whoever has experienced that, you are actually alone. No one else has experienced it. Specifically not me. <laughs> anyway, so this kid was literally being aggressive towards me. And I just let it roll off my back. I did not miss a single step in my circuit. I did not miss a single lap on my track. I just kept on keeping on. I came home. I drank some water. I looked at some TikToks. You only thought about it a little bit every day for the next six days. <laughs> I thought that it was funny content for a tweet and for a podcast. But I'm not bothered. You seem unbothered and I'm so proud of you. Zen. Okay, I know that it's easy to let the insults of a child roll off your back. <laughs> but I feel like it was good practice in being like this child idiot doesn't know shit also the other people don't know shit every single person who is annoying me for no reason is a child idiot and I shouldn't let their things bother me that little girl was a zen vaccine she was yes. just a little bit of inoculation yes against the idiots and now I'm cured you seem perfect <laughs> Claire uh-huh how was your week like a memoir how was my week like a memoir? Um, it was like a memoir and that the, I spent the entire time thinking about myself. What would I have titled this week in my memoir? Here's the problem. And longtime listeners, even midterm listeners are going to know that I have been quitting my job now for like weeks. I did finally <laughs> have my last day last Tuesday. But I texted somebody. I was like, I feel like I've been quitting longer than I worked here. It was a three week ending period. And up till pay, it was a three week ending period, but three and a half months of you deciding if and when you were going to quit. So this was my first week of freedom. It was amazing. Not working is one of the most fun things you could do on the planet. I hope it all works out and I don't have to go back desperately. I feel good. I feel like I'm putting it out there, dotting my I's, crossing my T's, getting all my little admin bullshit done, really setting myself up for success. Great. Much like you, not a lot's been happening. I feel like I'm swimming into the ocean that is my life and it's boundless. I have no idea where I'm going. It feels like I have infinite possibility and directions and I'm just easing my way in and I, the water feels fine. Hell yeah. Oh, before we go any further, we just want to disclaim once again up top that this is a podcast, Celebrity Memoir Book Club, where we, Claire and Ashley, discuss celebrity memoirs we try our best to be journalistic to have journalistic integrity but sometimes our petty whore nature gets the best of us it's true we can't stop fucking these books and making them pay us in return <laughs> so we might be mean if that's not your cup of tea that's fine go find a different cup of tea but don't take a shit in our cup because some people like this tea okay if you're wondering what a shit in a cup looks like it's a one-star review on itunes we don't want that don't do it if you don't like it just walk away and if you do like it hit us with those five in the words stars of kelly clarkson just walk away yeah in the words of you too, walk on for those of you who have been with us the entire journey of our podcasting lives which is now for almost five years we started with who's with tabs hold, hold on, on one second, second. We're, we're talking, talking about, about britney, britney spears. spears for the who's with tabs heads who are wondering what our take is on the most recent britney spears update oh yeah we do talk about it on the patreon i would like to say here we stopped doing our britney spears podcast when the free britney movement began what started as a fun, nostalgic podcast where we kind of make fun of the world's most famous pop star for wearing khakis in a loving way. It wasn't fun to reminisce and have fun and joke about a woman who could potentially have been kept a prisoner. Obviously, for the first time in years, she has spoken out honestly about what has been happening to her. She is, in fact, being kept a prisoner, and it's really devastating and hard to hear. But I do think it's important, especially in the way that her as a punchline has shaped pop culture and I think a lot of people have a lot of thinking to do I do think though anybody with a ton of additional commentary should be shot and killed 
This is not the time for your hot takes. I didn't have a hot take outside of, wow, that's fucking sad. If you had any feelings about it besides, wow, that's sad, mm-hmm. you need to shut up because for the first time in 13 years, Britney Spears is talking and it's like, all you can do is listen. There's no, no need to speculate anymore. She's speaking for herself. She told us the truth. She told us her thoughts and all we can do is support and believe her and believe her. I do think that if she is not released from this conservatorship, there's a lot of heads that need to roll. And I think that when she is released from the conservatorship, there are a lot of heads that need to roll. But until then, we just need to support her and listen to her. Yeah. And just hope that she gets freed from the situation she is, that she gets justice and that hopefully this sheds broader light on the conservatorships that other people are put in. Well, we've learned now is this is a huge problem and if someone like Britney Spears can get stuck in it god bless anybody else who's not as powerful yeah I also want to talk about why we chose to do celebrity memoir book club is because we have been looking at the recent media landscape is really looking at the way we treated celebrities in the 2000s the way women specifically are treated by the tabloid culture and me and Ashley are huge pop culture heads and we were asking the question how do you ethically consume pop culture because I don't think we're ever going to stop and I also think part of their livelihood is the speculation of their personal life someone like Taylor Swift somebody like the Kardashians I don't think we have to stop I don't think the problem is the discussion I think the problem is the root of the discussion the anger and the hatred and the misogyny the misogyny and like kind of creating these things that aren't there to make them look worse than they are that is why we started this podcast because we felt like you're allowed to hate people you just can't hate them because you rooted through their garbage and stalked them until they break down you get to hate them in their own freaking words Mm -hmm. and a lot of times if you listen to people they will give you a lot of reasons to despise them so we bought these books we paid for our right to be judgmental we bought the milk to judge the cow for free (laughs) and i do want to get into this week's lena goddamn dunham who just had one of the most self-obsessed posts about britney spears i mean she is the perfect example of what not to do in the wake of this britney spears thing which is make it about yourself should we get into this week's book yes but first i want to do a little promo okay this week we have an episode on the patreon that i'm so freaking excited about MJ Corey, who you may know on Instagram and TikTok as Kardashian Colloquium, so smart. She is a psychoanalyst and has like a master's in philosophy and she looks at the Kardashians through lenses. The lenses that we wish we had access to. Listen, as a bitch who doesn't even wear glasses to see signs, you know I've been missing all the subtleties. She is so smart. I'm so excited to have her. Check out both of her socials. Deep dive into even more of what she talks about. As someone with a minor in psychology, I'm very excited to speak to her peer to peer. (laughs) I wonder if we could get you a little bit of therapy. (laughs) I wonder if I could just like build my own stuff in and be like, you know, the way that Courtney has this fear of intimacy that she uses by like talking shit about partners on podcasts. (laughs) How would you recommend to her that she balance work life etc <laughs> how would you suggest to her that she break down these walls <laughs> say she didn't have three kids and was living in a five-story walk up in brooklyn what would you suggest to her then <laughs> so tune in for that i'm so excited and i guess all there's left to do unfortunately is the thing that i don't want to be done let's talk about lena dunham i want to just say up front I did try to read this book without the preconceived notions I have about her, which are primarily negative. I really wanted to read it just from the perspective of not knowing much about her. I wanted to read it and be like, what does she have to say as an essayist? The only word I think I can use to describe her after reading the book is sucks. (laughs) The funny thing about trying to read Lena Dunham's book without knowing who she is, is if you were to truly read it out of context, you would just go, why was this woman given a book? Because you know that there's interesting things that she's avoiding But nothing in the book is interesting. She does not have one thing happen to her. She does not have a particularly interesting insight into anything. She doesn't offer clear-cut lessons. 
It's truly a woman who's had not one experience speaking about them uninterestingly. There is honestly a chapter where she talks about coming up against assholes in Hollywood. And because she doesn't want to call anybody out, she says she can't call anyone out until she's 80 and retired. And so until then, she just writes this loose, ambiguous chapter about how if she could call people out, this would be a more interesting chapter. And I found that part to be very representative of the rest of the book. She's like, if something had happened, I'd have a lot to say. But unfortunately, I mean, she's such an uninteresting person with so few things to share with anybody. And she's desperately looking for lessons she can hand to people. But truly, the only lesson would be be born deeply privileged in the heart of Manhattan with every artistic connection in the world. And parents that dote on your every neurotic, insane whim. She has an entire chapter about going to camp and the time she didn't go to water skiing class. She found out later that actually nobody was at water skiing class that day. So she would have gotten ample time to water ski. (laughs) That's the entire chapter. And it's one of two chapters about overnight camp where she does almost nothing (laughs) but I mean that's supposed to be like a metaphor I guess and that's the whole book it's just things that she didn't do that could have been but aren't and even if they had been still weren't much so my first negative taste of Lena Dunham was actually not even a thing that Lena Dunham did I was an intern working in the big city Hollywood I was an intern at a television production company They made a bunch of shows that you might have heard of. I just cannot remember what a single one of them is called. And they've since gone under, so I don't even think I could Google it. They went under before internet was a thing. This was like your internship in 1892. No, they were definitely around post-internet. But now that they don't exist, I feel like it's all scrubbed from the net. You know how you can do that. You know, the one thing about the net is when you're done and you want out, you can get it all off there. You know, you pick up your toys and you go on home. They clear out your desk and they send you all your stuff via courier. And it's like you never existed. So I was the day after Girls, the TV show, premiered. Okay, I'd watched it and I thought this show is actually quite interesting, but pretty obnoxious. And I think that's the point they're trying to make. They're presenting an obnoxious version of reality. Mm -hmm. And then I was in the kitchen and I heard a male executive talking to another male executive. And he said that show that premiered last night, Girls, that everyone's talking about, it's so interesting to see a realistic take on what 20-something women are doing and thinking. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) The people who don't have insight think that this is the actual thing. And I do think at the end of the day, Girls has done some pretty negative things for women in their 20s (laughs) because of that. So the scene that really upset me that I thought was like an interesting scene had it not been a scene that was weaponized against me and my kind... is the scene where her parents tell her that they will no longer be paying her rent, paying all of her bills, giving her an allowance, etc. And she throws an absolute hissy fit. I've had people come to me before and been like an absolute disbelief that I paid my own bills. And I was just like, wow, okay, that really does hurt my feelings. It just is crazy that people watched that show and were like, ah, yes, an anthropological take on women. No woman pays rent. So I think that if it's viewed as like a parody or something like that, then it's a really interesting and well done show. And I think if it's viewed as a snippet of life, it sucks. I remember watching Girls when it first came out. And I used to make the joke that if you were an alien and you came down and watched Girls, you assume whoever made that show absolutely hated women. Yes. Because women come off so poorly in it. And as somebody who knows a lot of women and has been friends with a lot of women, I can admit in your 20s, things suck. Sometimes you're dating a guy you hate. Sometimes you and your friends fight. Sometimes you don't know what's going on at your job and you get fired. Often even, if you're me. <laughs> I don't know that all things have been hell at all times. And if they were, like I've definitely had, oh God, that summer was rough. It was the lack of growth. Everybody I know who has been through your 20s hell and back come out the other side with some growth. And I felt like what always frustrated me about girls personally 
is that they never were growing, that everything was bad all the time. It was so pathetic. And it was the absolute being pathetic, except for Jessa. I've always thought the only one I liked was Jessa because at least she seemed to have some kind of control over her being and some sort of confidence in herself that she could take action. And that felt more realistic and to me. And I think Shoshana every once in a while stood up to somebody. Shoshana grew like a normal person. Yeah. She came out a little insecure, but she kept making choices and taking chances and sticking up for herself at some point. You know what I mean? She grew confident and she changed. I felt the other ones were so stagnant. It was very frustrating. And then the other thing that killed me about girls was I believe that Lena Dunham is the queen of this thing I call deflective honesty, which yeah. is where it's almost like sleight of hand magic, but emotionally where you're like, oversharing one part of your life to make everybody gasp and awe at how like transparent and real and vulnerable you are. She's showing her body in this way to make sure that nobody notices how deeply connected she was. My thing is, if you're going to do a slice of life of New York City, you need to acknowledge how expensive it is. And there are a lot of people here whose parents pay their rent and can just dapple along doing whatever the fuck they want. And it doesn't matter month to month. But if your parents are not paying your rent, you're never just seeing what happens. You're like acutely aware of money coming in and money going out. And it would have been fine. And honestly, honest, if those four women and girls had all been rich bitches from the suburbs of New Jersey, Long Island, whatever. But then when they tried to pretend that they were all from like these working class families, I was like, this is not honest. This is not real. You can't just quit your job and try to become a singer songwriter and then live in a one bedroom in downtown Manhattan. That's not what happens. And it made me so fucking mad. Lena Dunham annoys the shit out of me. She has a deeply self-absorbed take on everything. Like she cannot fathom that anybody else exists. It's funny because the things that the right wing comes at her for, like when she said that thing about how she wished she had had an abortion one time so she could talk about it. I do think they're right to go for her. The problem with her in real life, which is the problem with her in this book, is that she does think that she should have an opinion on everything and something she just has absolutely nothing to say about. Like I'm surprised that there's not a chapter on what it's like to have an abortion should she have ever had to have one in this book. Yes. That's the problem with this book. Nothing fucking happened to her and yet she really feels that if she amasses all these vague memories and puts them together, maybe you won't notice that nothing happened. I mean, there are literally chapters towards the end of the book where she's just stringing together vague memories. It's a chapter about nothing. The start point and the end point, you're like, did I just read one single chapter? It's just clipped stories that don't relate in almost any way. It's so confusing. It's the opposite of brave writing because I do think that there's something very brave in writing to posit a theory. Yeah. And especially in these kind of nonfiction essays to go forth strongly and be like, and here's my take on it. She offers no take. She just offers hints that this might be interesting and important. She's like confident, but not brave. She just brushes near a point and like skates close to the line and then doesn't hit it at all. So this book is split up into five sections. The sections are love and sex, body, friendship, work, and big picture which I would actually argue is the smallest picture. And each chapter is made up of a few essays and at least one listicle, which are these weird little two-page chunks where she just says things that I guess make her seem quirky and interesting. She's like, how do I build in these punchlines that I've had in unrelated conversations into this book so that everyone knows how funny and interesting I am? That's how those feel. And then there's definitely some chunks in here that I find deeply worthless. I think I'm finding through these memoirs, especially when people write them too young, 
to do a big picture from the perspective of 29. What I'm saying is I think that people think that they have enough life experience to write a book from the minute that they become even moderately successful. They're like, look at me, a successful woman. Of course I could write a book. But then as soon as they start writing it, they realize that their contract has a certain amount of pages in it mm -hmm. and they cannot hit that page count. Anna Kendrick, we saw this. She could not hit a page count to save her life. Those listicles and hers, my God. This is one that I definitely think some of those chapters at the end where she's just skating from vague memory to vague memory and then throws in an extra listicle it's like she was really really gunning for that 300 page mark and she couldn't hit it we're starting a little bit out of order but I want to start with friendship section three because I think Ashley made a really incredible point about friendship and Lena Dunham so I'm just gonna really quick take you guys through the five chunks of the friendship chapter first we have girl crush colon that time I was almost a lesbian then vomited then we have the best part, which is about breakups and men. It's an ode to friendship where she goes through all the breakups she's been through and how there was always a woman on the other side that she could hang out with. Then we have 13 things I learned are not okay to say to friends, which is 13 times that she's made her friends uncomfortable and been an unpleasant person. <laughs> then we have a chapter called Grace, which is about her sibling who's now named Cyrus. Then we have 10 reasons I heart and why. So I guess New York really comes in as a clutch friend in this moment. <laughs> I also want to point out one of the things she loves about New York. And she tells this story about a time she was in a cab on her birthday and they hit an old lady and she died. And then she wouldn't stop saying it's my birthday to all of the EMTs. That is one of the most unhinged things that's ever happened to anyone. So one thing that we're going to get into when we start talking about sex and her main motivations the most important thing for Lena Dunham in the world is being sexually appealing to men. She needs men to want to fuck her. Otherwise, she is non-existent. Like, that's how she measures everything. And number nine in her Reasons I Heart New York is because everyone gets catcalled. And I mean everyone. This is honestly only the second time in my life I've heard someone genuinely enjoy being catcalled. And the other one was that Republican on the Today Show that one time. Lena Dunham honestly is Republican in the sense that she thinks her experience is the only experience that everyone's had. And she refuses to acknowledge that somebody may have had a different life and therefore a different perspective because she's the most neurotic. She thinks she feels the most and therefore she has the entirety of feelings. So in this chapter about friendship, it's about men family kind of to your point about how ultimately the number one driving force Selena Dunham is male attraction her chapter about Cyrus is about how at first she begged for a sibling and then when Cyrus came she describes how she felt that the family had been taken over she called Cyrus an intruder she said maybe it's the sensation of finding a lover in your spouse's bed the sexualization of her brother is really sick to me. And I think it's really sick. It's really and weird. I do think this is part of why she can't have friends because mm -hmm. I do think she can only look at people as sexual objects. So any form of intimacy she experienced with anybody, she imagines must be like a sexual intimacy. She got in a lot of trouble for this chapter where she describes when her brother was one, she asks her mom if everybody has a uterus and her mom is like, yep. And so Lena opens his vagina and finds pebbles up there or something like she says her brother had put pebbles up his vagina her brother was born when they grew up she said as she grew I took to bribing her for her time and affection one dollar and quarters if I could do her makeup three pieces of candy if I could kiss her on the lips for five seconds whatever she wanted to watch on tv if she would just relax on me but then she also talks about how Cyrus slept in Lena Dunham's bed growing up and she's like, he was there when I was watching SNL. He was there when I was doing whatever. He was there when I started putting my hand down my pants and exploring myself. And then that other line about comparing the birth of her brother 
to finding a lover in your spouse's bed. Why? Why yeah. that? I mean, the sexualization of her brother is insane. I, she talks about when her brother eventually comes out as a lesbian first. Mm-hmm. Lena is talking about how awesome Cyrus is and says at the time, obviously this was written before transition so this female pronouns but it says she is thin but physically lazy guys love her we're talking about the fact that he's a lesbian at this point to frame it from the view of men and male attraction is such a bizarre thing to do it's the last sentence it's at the end of a section about cyrus after college and how much he's becoming himself and how much she really like looks up to her little brother and the last sentence is guys love her like that is the cherry on top that is crowning achievement the ultimate goal any human being of any gender any sexuality can achieve is to have men be sexually attracted to you and I really do think Lena betrays herself time and time again about how important that is to her I agree and I think that it's especially interesting that once again that's the cap on a chapter about family within a section about friendship she does not have friends she doesn't know what friendship means or is or is about and to add to that, let's get to the first section of Girl Crush. I mean, if you're mad at Billie Eilish for queer baiting, this chapter isn't queer baiting. It is. It's using fake same sex attraction to make yourself seem more interesting and have something to talk about. That's queer baiting by definition. Yes, but I think a lot of the language in this chapter, I would actually say, is deeply homophobic. I think queer baiting can be homophobic. I think it can okay. be both. You have to say, at the end of the day, the time I was almost a lesbian, then vomited. She is using a non happening for her. That reaffirms her non-gay sexuality to fill content. That is queer baiting by definition. Yeah. So at one point when I was reading this book, you guys, I was counting the number of casually homophobic things she says. And I did lose count around eight because I forgot that I was doing it. But that was page 12 or something, right? It was pretty quickly in. So this one, she says, she's talking about a class trip that they went on where she was sharing a hotel room with some friends in, I think, eighth grade. And she says they all went totally gay. And I guess her friends started sort of experimenting with each other. And she said, even Stephanie, who had a serious boyfriend, decided to go totally gay. It started with some light kissing on the bed. And Lena Dunham refused to take part in this. And she says, it wasn't that I didn't want to join in. I sort of did. But what if I liked it? What if I started and I never stopped? How could I turn back? I had no issue with gay people I just didn't want to be one the amount of times dressing like a lesbian looking like a lesbian being a bisexual is the punchline I mean it's not just homophobic it's bad writing which to me is worse I agree this is of course the opening chapter in her section about friendship it's the times in her life that she knew girls I mean she starts in fourth grade and she all the times she admired a woman and almost felt sexually attracted to them she talks about being in high school and a girl showing her kind of like a sexual move you can use on boys where you'd chew on their earlobe and how that sort of turned her on and it's like yeah you're a horny little teen literally all physical attraction is going to kind of turn you on a little bit but what really kills me is it culminates in this night she spent with a playwright slash actor in London who had this very cool kind of androgynous London the London theater scene lifestyle It sounds like this woman is also deeply rich because she walks her into some mansion in London where people just live a la Cara Delevingne, just like throwing cigarette butts to the wind. I mean, very much like I inherited this from my lord uncle and we just piss everywhere because it's wonderful to live this way. Very Peter Panish. I don't know. But she talks about how fun it was and she gets really drunk and she ends up throwing up and they almost kiss. And then she spends the rest of her life looking at the selfie they took together and they almost kiss, but they didn't. 
and nothing ever happened again. And the line that actually stuck out to me, one of the things that she liked so much about this woman, I've realized I've never talked to anyone else about this, much less a woman my own age. I've never talked to anyone my own age about anything beyond ambition, technique, passion, philosophy. We don't touch any of that. So she's never had a real conversation with a woman. I mean, as two comics, we talk all the time about technique, passion, philosophy. I don't understand why she's never spoken to anybody about what it is to make film, what it is to write a script. It's Presumably she knows a million people who do that. That feels like a her failing. The idea that this woman is so incredible because she's talking about what it is to be a writer and how she likes to write. That, as she makes clear time and time again, she is not a lesbian. She is scared of being a lesbian. She's not sexually attracted to women. She's never really kissed one. The time she did in college, she didn't like it. But here's this intimate moment she has where she's talking about the creative process with this woman. And the only thing she can understand it as is like a sexual attraction. And it's just like... Yeah, you're not gay. You just don't have a friend. So there's another part way later in the book. And this is after she's working on girls. So she's already started coming to some sort of success. And she has like an absolute panic attack. She really flips the fuck out. She has this insane week where she has to fly home and be babied by her parents because she just becomes non-functional. Then this guy that she knew in college happens to be in town kind of like living off the land out of a van. And so when she needs someone to kind of care for her back in LA, he's the only person she could think to call. And they have this night where they go to dinner with an old friend. And she has this night where she sort of realizes that she needs to be more confident in herself and her abilities and her being And they have this wonderful talk where he says he really respects her and her work. And she starts to realize that she has a potential to use this voice to create something important. And then she talks about texting and being like, I wish she had kissed me that night. And it's just like, why can't you just have a moment, a moment about anything besides sex? Any positive feeling is like, if this isn't sexual tension, how could I possibly identify it? I mean, she talks about a guy she dates in college. She says, Jeff was a senior, a fair haired meditator who once cried in my parents' hammock because he told me you are forcing sex when I just want to be heard. She is obsessed with sex and then has the weirdest relationship to it because then she's like, I don't actually think I liked it. She cannot have an honest relationship with anybody where she's not being sexually desired. Yeah. And she famously got in a lot of trouble for writing this tweet about Odell Beckham Jr. Yeah. A star football player who sat at the same table as her at the Met Gala. And she wrote a tweet about how he didn't pay attention to her at all because she was so unfuckable that he wasn't even interested. First of all, you're not cool to talk to, Lena. You seem neurotic and annoying. She talks about how all she can talk about is death. Speaking of friendship, the only people that she calls her friends throughout this book, she mentions a couple people as her best friends. One of them is her grandma. Yes. One of them is her fourth grade teacher or something. She talks about her therapist fondly. You don't seem easy to have a conversation with. She does that. She puts a sexual tint to everything. Yeah. There's no one she won't have sex with. So in that sense, she'll talk to anybody. But then the idea that somebody wouldn't talk to her because she is not sexually appealing. It's like, I don't know. You made that up. Some of us can just have fucking conversations. Some of us are just out here networking. Also, sometimes you go to a party where you know a handful of people and and you talk to the people you know. So in conclusion with friendship, I don't know that she has any. I think women only exist to fill the spaces between the men in her life that give her value and meaning. It is very funny to me that one of my problems with girls was that I felt that there was no true friendship there. And even our friend Sophia was just saying, and I think Sophia liked girls, but she was like, one thing that I found really dishonest about it was that those women all seem to hate each other. And it's like, even when I fought with my friends, and Lord knows we're in a fight with Claire and Ashley, I have fought with my friends I do like them. I do love my friends. Yeah. So her relationship to love and sex in general feels so bizarrely like self-centered and transactional. 
I mean, she says she wasn't even sure if she liked sex. I liked everything leading up to it. The guessing, the tentative, loaded interactions, the stilted conversation. I liked the glimpse it gave me into my partner's subconscious. I liked the part where I got the sense that someone else could maybe even did desire me. That is all that she likes. That's all that she likes. And this is the part that gets into the platonic bed sharing, which is an interesting chapter. A weird chapter. That also flits back and forth, kind of not knowing itself where she falls and whose fault it is. Because it starts... With her being like, because I didn't like sex, but I craved intimacy. I liked it when men slept in my bed because it simulated intimacy without having to quote, as she says, have someone like prod around her insides. Invade her insides is the word she uses to describe sex, which I actually find very telling. Yeah, it's not great. and You shouldn't be doing it. But so it starts off with her being like, I was using them because this was an intimacy I was comfortable with. But then she says, at the time, I didn't have that self-awareness. So I thought it was just as good as it could get for me. I was accepting my lot as, quote, not ugly enough to be repulsive and not beautiful enough to seal the deal. My bed was a rest stop for the lonely and I was the spinster innkeeper. Then later she goes on to talk about how it continued. And even after college, guys would sleep in her bed and her parents were like, they can't use you as a crash pad. Like if you're not having sex with them, get them the fuck out of your bed. And then she was like, yeah, I realized you really shouldn't share your bed with somebody. And then she kind of sees it as she was being used. And that's like the realization she has later. But even though the beginning of the essay starts with her with the ultimate realization, which was that she was getting something out of it and ends with her reclaiming her authority which is to not be used because she does decide that sharing a bed platonically is one of the most sensual activities this is the thing that i find so strange like you were talking about earlier the way that she is completely incapable of viewing things outside of herself and her own perspective she thinks she speaks for the masses and everything and i find this bed sharing thing to be so unrelatable I don't even know where to start with it. Like it was a confusing chapter for me because I was like, I don't even understand how we got here. This weird bed sharing pattern. Maybe it is somebody's experience. I don't want to say it's nobody's experience. It's literally her experience. But the way that she explains it doesn't even feel like she does a good job of truly getting to the thought behind it. I really just still feel like I needed more background on how this was even happening. I actually felt that this was one of the few chapters that did have lessons because at the end she goes, do not share your bed with people unless you're having sex with them or you're, they're your family or it's like a friend and you're crashing. Okay, I guess then there is a lesson, but it was one of the ones that I don't actually think that people, like I wasn't gonna, you know what I mean? <laughs> I do think there are a good number of people who, whose experience is that they cannot get laid. She talks about like pushing her butt up against guys while they're sleeping to try to get them interested and she can never get anything going. I've literally had the opposite experience where I've been in bed with men pretending to be asleep to get them to fucking stop touching me. (laughs) So it's hard for me to imagine having to like semi assault and still not being able to seal the deal. But that's the thing is, did she want there to be something or was she just in it for the bed sharing? I guess the ultimate lesson, which I do think is valid, is that it comes from this deep fear of loneliness. She would rather be with somebody that she wants to have sex with and like take what she can get than sit alone with her thoughts. And I think she's saying it's better to be alone with yourself than to accept less love than you want. Yes. There's about 70 pages dedicated to sex and love in this section. She doesn't say much of anything except for one very interesting chapter, which is girls and jerks. She talks about how she's always loved jerks. And she says it's because her dad was so nice to her that as an act of rebellion, she wanted to find assholes. She's like, I know I'm the only person who's ever come up with that theory. I think I might have started it. I'm like, I would actually (laughs) argue that you... Accept the love you think you deserve. So if you don't love yourself, you're going to go for people who treat you like the shit you think you are. Totally. This is the second time that she almost gets to a good point and then undermines it. So somehow in the middle of this section, she talks about being in college. She talks about being in college a lot in a book, which I think is a number one red flag that you're not ready to write a book. Yeah. Unless it's literally a book about college. 
I don't think if the majority of your life experiences came from college, you're old enough to write a book. Yeah, but I also think that if you're closing out your 20s and still the only experiences you've had are college. And she wrote and created a hit television show. Yeah, there should have been something more interesting happening. Yeah. But so anyway, at college, she goes outside and she has this experience where she's trying to get in on the joke. And some guy goes, oh, you would never understand little Lena from Soho. Section ends. <laughs> and then we move into this guy she dated. He was like 10 years older than her. Yeah. But she dates him. He's an asshole to her. And it's bad. And she comes to the conclusion that she was like, I thought I could date him and section this part off of myself because she said the way I saw it, I was fully capable of being treated with indifference that bordered on disdain while maintaining a strong sense of self-respect. That isn't how it works. When someone shows you how little you mean to them and you keep coming back for more before you know it, you start to mean less to yourself. If we had ended the chapter there, I would have said really important point I have been in relationships where I really thought that the way that they treated me wasn't affecting my sense of self because I was like, whatever, as long as I can see outside of what they're saying, it does affect you. Like no matter what, it will affect you. That is literally the fight we used to get in about Matt where yeah. I'd be like, he's saying mean things to you. And you'd be like, yeah, but I don't believe him. And I'm like, I don't think that's the point. It was, you know. <laughs> so, okay. You know what? I almost gave it to Lena. I was reading. I go, this isn't a bad point. But then how did she finish that section off? She goes, the last sentence of that chapter, she goes, and I didn't learn anything about life that I hadn't learned in Soho. So the idea being that she dated this asshole to try to learn about the experience life. of not rich people. And it turns out not rich people don't know anything she doesn't know because this asshole didn't teach her anything about herself. What the fuck did that have to do with growing up in Soho? She's like, I know what it's like to not know if we have enough money for rent. I did it an asshole once. <laughs> I know. And it's funny because then it goes right into a chapter about falling in love, which is another chapter that's just like riddled with unacknowledged privilege. She's talking about some friends that she had that she would, you know, hang out with. And she's like, this is before I had any conception of the financial reality of my friends. Oh, I'd explained about a friend living in a massive West Village loft. I think he makes tons of money at his internship for food, not bombs. Like she really has no understanding of money and finances and privilege. I think she thinks by telling us these things that she's acknowledging privilege, but she's not reconciling with it at all. When we were talking about how she was learning to masturbate, she talks about having like an experience sort of discovering her body for the first time at her summer home. In the body section, she talks about being vegan and how she threw a vegan dinner, dinner party, party for her friends in high school that was reported on by the New York Times. Yeah. And by the way, that summer home her family has is down the street from Roberta Smith and Jerry Saltz. Roberta Smith is the head art critic for the New York Times. And Jerry Saltz is one of the top art critics right now in New York City. He's a real tastemaker. Big time maker of tastes. <laughs> he invented bubblegum ice cream. <laughs> That's like one of the worst flavors. I used to love it. <laughs> Ew, is that true? Yeah, I used to save all the bubblegum pieces for later. And then I would eat the bubblegum ice cream and then eat the bubblegum chunks. <laughs> I fucking hate kids. So at the end of the day... All Lita Dunham really cares about is being attractive to men to the point where when she talks about success, she's like, even though I was achieving things, he didn't want to fuck me. But these bad relationships that she had, even during the first season of Girls, she was dating a guy who she'd met on set who wasn't nice to her. They had this weird relationship that was kind of absolute nonsense. And then she meets Jack Antonoff, who she doesn't write about because... She wants to protect their relationship, which you said is a weird choice because, okay, you talked about these misfires, not presented us with a single usable lesson. But now that you have 
a successful relationship, which obviously now they've broken up, but because now you have a successful relationship, is there a single thing you can teach us here? And she's like, and then I found the one and I love him very much. The end. And she's also feels the need to point out that he is goofy looking and she's the only person on earth who could find him attractive, which I also think is a weird way to frame it. I do think, though, that's like a real insight into her. The whole Lena Dunham thing is that she knows she doesn't fit the standard of beauty. She's never going to win at the Jennifer Aniston game. Right. So what she's done is like doubled down and being weird looking. But now, I mean, I was making this joke to you before. I was like, I really think she is somebody who thinks that being ugly should be like protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. She thinks that if you are not sexually attracted to her, she should be able to take you to a court of law and sue you over it. But she's not going to help you. She's not going to like do something normal with her hair and wear a nice outfit. She's going to look as ugly as possible and then hold you accountable for still finding her sexy. I just feel like it's a very boring response to be like pushing people away and then mad when they leave. But I do think in the way that she points out all of Jack Antonoff's flaws, she calls his face sculpy, which is something that me and Ashley got into a little tiff about. And Ashley was right. So I want to give you your due. I kept being like sculpty. My face is sculpty. Like it's like a sculpture. Like I have a very like sculpted looking face and she goes no sculpey like clay like claymation when I looked it up sculpey is literally a kind of play-doh yeah and it is what Jack Antonoff's face looks like he does look like claymation like it was a good descriptor but it was not a flattering descriptor in my opinion because that's not what she wants she doesn't want to be that person who's like but he's gleaming and attractive yeah she wants to be the person who's like he literally looked like he came out of that Rudolph claymation movie where yes. all the freaks were put on their own island and I went on that island and I loved him because that's how she wants to be loved she wants all the worst parts of me are actually the things you like after she and Jack Antonoff broke up he was dating a model and she wrote something about how she's like I didn't think that that was the type that he would like and it's like okay classically beautiful people we all like people like that's why they're classically beautiful beautiful. but also it's really fucked up to say because she genuinely like cannot see beyond looks to think that someone who likes you couldn't possibly like a model maybe he likes idiots and you and that model are both fucking idiots or maybe he likes smart people and he thought you were a smart person but it turns out the model is actually a smart person she is obsessed with changing the beauty standard and like being this beacon for all women but she can't see past it and this is often my personal problem with the body positivity movement. Yeah, fuck positivity. But there is this funny <laughs> thing about the body positivity movement that isn't like a release from the male gaze. It isn't like, you know what, at the end of the day, we need to stop telling women that the most important thing is to be beautiful. It's like there's this pyramid and at the top is the most beautiful, thin, blonde model. And they're like, instead of dismantling the pyramid altogether, they're like, what we need to do is shift it. So actually I'm at the top of the pyramid. And I do feel like that's what Lena Dunham's doing is she's not going, look, I might not look like his model girlfriend, but I am someone who created a TV show and I work really hard on myself and I'm a good friend and I like to write about emotions in ways that are accessible to people and I have all these things that I'm so proud of about myself. Instead, she's like, if you don't find me beautiful, you'll go to hell. Like really what she's like, if I get my TV show going hard enough, then I will be sexy. That man that she talks about at the end who tells her that I did actually respect you in college. I like love that you created things. I think it's really cool that you have a TV show. She's like, why didn't he kiss me then? That the only true validation is sexual desire, which doesn't free women from anything. The coolest thing about her brother is that men liked him. Yeah. She's not leaving the male gaze at all. She's still deeply entangled with it. She's just trying to do it. She's trying to change the gaze. Yeah. To her. To her. Which is not like particularly noble in my mind. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about her work section, which I found very interesting because she doesn't really acknowledge much of her work. She doesn't really acknowledge 
how she created girls, how any of the thought process or any of the work behind it. She talks first about a job that she had just after college where she was kind of aimless, trying to figure out what to do. She'd made she made short films in college and then she moved back to New York, back into her parents loft where she mentions that she was no longer living in her room. She was living in a weird closet in the back of the house because her parents were like, "Okay, you've moved out. You've graduated. You're done. And then it turns out that she needed somewhere to live. She was working at a children's clothing store, a job that her friend just handed her, where she would get $100 cash a day. Pocket money. All of her bills and stuff are paid. Right. So she's talking about this job. She's really, honestly, quite disrespectful about it. I mean, she just gets this job because she knows someone. She's working in this clothing store for, like, rich babies. And she is so disdainful about it. She can't shut up about how stupid this whole place is. And I get that. I worked at stupid companies. I used to work at a company that made diamond Barbie jewelry. Can you just... It's just so they know okay. what diamond Barbie jewelry is. It's okay. You know Barbie? <laughs> yeah. You know, like the silhouettes of her face and things yep. like that. The Barbie logo, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not talking about jewelry for the Barbies. I'm talking about Barbie themed jewelry encrusted with diamonds <laughs> for people. <laughs> Did people buy that? Legend has it. <laughs> Anyway, the point is, even though I thought this company was stupid, I was never resentful of my boss and I always tried to do the best I could because I knew that I was making money at a failing business that made no sense and I needed the money to live to pay my rent. But I like knew that this whole thing was like a crock of nonsense. Mm -hmm. But the way that Lena talks about this company so meanly, like she says one time her boss was upset with her because she sold the wrong size baby leggings to Gwyneth Paltrow. And it's just like, yeah, you fucked up at work. I don't understand why you're being so resentful about the fact that you have this absolutely nonsense job at a failing nonsense company. And you're like resentful that when you fuck around, don't do your job well, they're not nice to you. It's also at this time that she does this video with her friends that she works with as a joke called the Delusional Downtown Divas. And here's something interesting to me. Yeah. Because the premise of this film or this miniseries was the story of children of the art world trying and failing to match their parents' success, unsure of their own passions, but sure they wanted glory. They ended up having a opening for it with a premiere, and she's like, all these people came, even people we didn't know. I'm wondering how they got a premiere night at a downtown art gallery. Could it have to do with their art connections? Because of it, they were then invited to host the 2009 Guggenheim's first annual art awards. These three women. They end up running an office space downtown, They write jokes. This is in 2009. So then by 2010, she gets girls. And she also does not mention where these partners went when she made girls. Because girls does feel like a very clear offshoot of what she's describing here. And these two women were not at all involved. She says she got into a huge fight with one of them at that Guggenheim event when they were getting their hair and makeup done. Because she made a comment to one of them that she should end up just opening a store. And her friend's like, why would you say that to me? That feels disrespectful and no offense to people opening up a store. She's basically telling this friend that we all made this web series and I'll go on to have a creative life. You could sell things. She does say it meanly. And I don't think she has friends. Like, I don't know if she's still friends with anybody besides Jemima Kirk from Girls. I know that her and Jenny Conner, who wrote it together, or Connor, don't speak at all. Right. But then the whole chapter ends. And this is what's important is in an interview somebody goes what's the worst job you've ever had and she makes that joke about the Gwyneth Paltrow thing and she goes I say wincing at the memory what I don't say is that it felt like home and that it started our journey that we ate the best lunches I've ever had what I don't say is that I miss it she has this thing that I think she's trying to do with this book and she does it with college a lot she talks a lot about 
how she hated college. She hated school. But then when she goes back to give a lecture, she's like, why did I hate it? My life went on and it's so much better now, but it still makes me sad that I hated it so much. And I'm just like, I don't know. That's life, right? You don't know you're loving it. And so I think she's always trying to make this point of like, the journey is just as beautiful as the destination. We may have thought it sucked when we were working there, but looking back, we had so much fun and I miss it. The problem is it doesn't suck. Yeah. The problem is that her job was that she had about as much responsibility as a 16 year old. She had rent covered. I mean, she didn't have any true expenses. She was making a hundred dollars of pocket money, no tax. She worked with her two best friends and all they did was fuck around and then they made this dumb web series that somehow got her an HBO show by the time she was 25. So she had about two to three years of feeling lost, in which time she was partying. She never had to worry about rent. She didn't seem to have much concerns. And she was just making movies with her friends. And she's acting like, looking back, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And it's like, I don't know, you weren't a fucking coal miner. It seems like pretty good times. She has this whole section about going back to college and being like, why was I so sad? And it's like... Yeah, I don't know. Why were you? I'm sorry, but people looking back and being like, oh, I was angsty in college. Like, I don't actually care about that story that much. It's not that interesting. First of all, she says one thing about college where she talks about the way all teachers are just trying to like strip you. She says, basically, teachers are draining you of your perspective. And she mentions a couple of times bad lessons she learned in schools. And it all really comes down to the fact that no one can teach her anything. Every, she already knows everything she needs to know. No one should even try. Then she talks about revisiting campus. She's back there to make a speech because now she's successful. She has a show on HBO. They do like a sort of Q&A and someone says, how does it feel to be a line item in so many people's narratives of privilege and oppression? She says, I don't have a good answer. I look around for a sympathetic face before muttering, there are some worse guys than me, which is, you know, a a pretty bad answer. She doesn't get into it any further, but one student does warn her that at her big panel tonight there's a student protest planned the person interviewing her says I feel like I have to bring up some of the controversies surrounding your work okay bring it up I'm trying to speak from a place of common strength but it comes out more like a shriek bring it up and tell those protesters to come in and we'll talk like adults not just freaks with signs we will talk to each other and just work it out and then she realizes there actually was no protest everyone was looking at her like she was insane the protest never happened whatever that's where it sort of ends And she doesn't bring up what the controversial questions were. She never truly acknowledges her relation to privilege, the controversy around the work that she's created. But I think she thinks by acknowledging that there was controversy, she's doing it justice. Why does this book exist? It's such a missed opportunity to discuss any topic ever. It's just so funny to me that in that one sentence about the web series she did that got her that Guggenheim gig that they're talking about wanting to be glorified and being afraid they're not good enough. I've always said that's what's interesting about Lena Dunham. Talk about that. I feel like that's her driving fear. And that's what she refuses to get into with all the body stuff is like, what is it like to have been raised around this privilege and this expectation and like seeing how high a person can go and not knowing if you're worthy. But she doesn't ever really get into anything interesting like that. Yeah. And when she does talk about like what it was like post success, she realizes that she was exhausted and lonely, terrified of everything. She says, the confusing thing about incredible good fortune is just how isolating it can be. I realized with startling speed just how little everyone loves a winner. And it's like, that's not why people are coming for you, dude. That's insane that you think that that's why people are mad. Yeah, I think she might be one of the hardest people to be friends with on the planet. Ashley, we are running out of time. Do you, as a former Anno, (laughs) want to real quick sum up her bodies section? And then here's the thing, friends. 
we're struggling to really be open and honest about this book because I don't want to get canceled over my thoughts on Lena Dunham. I don't think she's worth it. I don't think I deserve it. We are going to go on the Patreon. We're going to get into how we feel truly about her body shit, how we truly feel about some of the, the murkier sections of this book, somewhere that is a safe space that I guess if you really hate us, you can pay $5 to sell us out to the New York Post. But let me tell you, it's worth it. It's worth the price of admissions. But Ashley will wrap us up here. And if you want more of my hottest, meanest takes, my white fire takes, <laughs> check us back out on the Patreon. Ashley, take us home. Tell me if I should re-say this because I don't think it's a right thing to say. I don't think it's a good thing to say. And I want to say trigger warning if you've ever struggled with eating disorders and this episode now. Lena Dunham starts out her body chapter with the sentence, as a child, I developed a terrible fear of being anorexic. And this is where she lost me. As a child, I developed an incredible desire to one day achieve anorexia. Have I ever told you about when I tried <laughs> to give myself OCD in high school so that then I could channel that OCD into anorexia? That's what I'm saying. The amount of people that I've heard say I wanted to be anorexic, but I didn't have the discipline. Yeah, that's a deeply problematic thought. No one should think that. That's a crazy thing to say. Don't say that. But... It's, from my experience, a common perspective, a fear of anorexia that she's presenting as like, this is how relatable I am talking about my body. I was so scared of being anorexic. I don't relate. I mean, this was the problem we said with the Portia de Rossi book is she's glorifying her anorexia. And I'm like, yeah, we all glorified it too. As a society, we all do have this like secret respect for women with that kind of willpower. We hate successful women unless you're successful at nearly wiping yourself out of existence. Then we're like, wow, good for her. She really nailed it. And I don't think it's a good thing. And I don't think people should do it. But I also just think that the way she talks about eating disorders and her body, I am on a mission to achieve body neutrality. You know, I think that's the ultimate goal. And I think that we should all have a general understanding of nutrition. I don't think body neutrality means ignoring food. I want to end with just this one quick thing that we'll get further into on the Patreon. But she says, she talks about seeing a nutritionist after she gained a lot of weight one year unexpectedly because she was eating strictly unhealthy foods. She says after she saw this nutritionist, what she lost is the ability to not know about what she's eating. She says, once you've seen a nutritionist, I will never again approach food in an unbridled guilt-free way. I think this is like a contradictory statement. I don't think you should be eating food in an unbridled way. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think you should have guilt for it. But I think that if you're going unbridled into food, you need to think about it more because it's not healthy to just eat what your body craves because sugar is a literal drug. I mean, I know a girl from college that I always accuse of living a deeply unhealthy life in relationship to food because she's like post anorexic. There's that thing where she's like, my goal this year is to eat a slice of cake every day to any time I want a food, indulge in it. And I do think her life is still determined and like controlled by her obsession with food and what she's putting in her body. But now just the opposite way. Yeah. And I don't know if that's any better. You should have an understanding of nutrition in a way where you like eat what's what nourishes your body, but you shouldn't feel guilt for eating something that isn't good for you. The thing that she says that the nutritionist says to her that's so awful and like ruins her relationship to food is he goes, you should be eating breakfast. You should be eating less processed foods and try to get more fruits and vegetables in. Yeah, and she never recovers from that. By the way, this is after college. She claims that she never weighed herself outside of the doctor's office pre-college. Yeah. So I'm like, if you got 22 good years in this fucking country, then you honestly are ahead of the rest of us. Be lucky you made it that far. She gives us a couple weeks of food diary, which I would really like to go into deep later. And she also hits us with a lot, a lot of negative energy towards exercise, which I also think is unhealthy. I think obsession with exercise is bad. And I also think this 
energetic hatred towards moving your body is bad. I just do believe that this is another example of she had to write a whole book. So she has to give her hot take on every aspect of a life, not her life of a life. She went through the litany of things that most women talk about and think about and gave her hot take. Even it has nothing to do with her. And I do think for her to be like, this is how I feel about eating disorders when she is one of the few people on the planet that I've seen least touched by an eating disorder. Honestly, she had a couple of months when she was 23, when she tried to lose weight and that was it. Yeah. And I want to say, I want to end this discussion of this book by re-referencing. I don't think we ever said the title of this book. It's called not that kind of girl. A young woman tells you what she's quote unquote learned. And after reading this book, I cannot in any way see how that title relates to a single thing I read in this book. Like, not that kind of girl. Where does she even mention that, really? Being that kind of girl. What kind of girl? I don't see how that is about the book at all. I don't know, man. I really feel like we read this so you guys didn't have to. So you're freaking welcome. (laughs) We'll see you on the Patreon. We'll see you next week. I'm so excited for this week's episode with Kardashian Colloquium on the Patreon. And then also we are doing John McEnroe with Hannah Burner next week. And I can't wait. You guys get your tennis rackets ready. We're about to hit something.